see you guys this morning. Uh, as I try to say often, as often as I can, thanks for bringing the church into this building as you are the church. Excited to dive into the scriptures this morning with you all. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. The guy who most Sundays gets to open up the Bible and preach God's word as we continue to work our way to the finish line of the book of Luke. We've been in this book for quite a while. We've got three Sundays left, including this morning, and we will have completed That journey. Um, I'll go ahead and invite you to open up your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in verses 13 through 32 this morning. Very famous passage of scripture. In fact, we've looked at it as a church a couple of times along the way. And so I trust for many of us, this will be something of a refresher, but for all of us that uh, we'll find ourselves greatly encouraged uh, by the time all said and done this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can use one of those Bibles. Uh, This morning's passage will also be up on the screen behind me as we work our way through it. I woke up at 2 a.m. for the day, so I'm going to pray mostly for me and uh, trust that God's power will be made perfect in weakness and we will glory in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray this morning as we open your word that we would see something of the glory of Jesus Christ. Not only that we would see, but to use the language of this morning's passage, that our hearts would burn within us. You're the God who sets hearts ablaze as we see the centrality and reality of Jesus Christ in the pages of scripture. And so I pray that One, you would give me the alertness and strength necessary to preach your word this morning, that it might be a means of grace to your people. I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach, that we would walk away fortified in our faith, that we would walk away encouraged, perhaps for some of us, that we would walk away with a different interpretive lens as it pertains to the way we view the scriptures and for others of us, that we would just be encouraged with much of the same as we've been tracking uh, with this seeing of Christ in all of Scripture for quite some time. Lord, whatever each of us brings into this room, I just pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would meet us where we are uh, through the preaching of your word this morning, and that in doing so, you might receive all the glory, and that it would be for our joy and good. In the name of our Savior, and glorious King Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So as we pick up this morning's passage, it's been three days since the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the first day of the week, Sunday. The day of the week when the early church would go on to begin worshiping, even though devout Jews had worshiped on Saturday for thousands of years. One of the, one of the many examples of circumstantial evidence in arguing for the historicity of the resurrection as the Sabbath was sacred to devout Jews who wouldn't have dared change the date of, of corporate worship unless there was good reason to do such a thing. 
And there was, going back to last week, the early church started worshiping on Sunday in honor and memory of Jesus's Sunday resurrection. The first day of the week, the women having returned to the the tomb at dawn's first light with the spices they had prepared for Jesus's body, only to find the, the stone rolled away, the body of the Lord Jesus nowhere to be found. Two angels having appeared to them announcing the the miracle of the resurrection just as Jesus had prophesied would come to pass, prompting them to to bring that glorious news of the risen Jesus back to the 11. Judas the betrayer no longer counted among the apostles. The women met with skepticism. Their message in the original language believed to be silly talk, folly, nonsense. Peter nonetheless compelled to run to the empty tomb that he might investigate their claims for himself firsthand. That's where we pick back up the story in verse 13, where Luke tells us that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. We're still in the day of Jesus's resurrection. At this point in the story, two of his disciples on what's famously come to be known as the road to Emmaus, discussing among themselves on the journey the things that had recently taken place, the trials that Jesus had undergone in the wake of the greatest kiss of betrayal the world has ever known, declared innocent by both Herod and Pontius Pilate, nonetheless delivered over to the will of the people, mocked and flogged, crucified between two common thieves under the the darkened skies of Jerusalem, the curtain of the temple torn in two, Jesus' body buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the tomb found empty earlier that very same morning. And Luke tells us in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, the two of them, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The risen Jesus joins these two on their leisurely stroll, and they have no idea in God's providential timing that it's him. And he said to them, verse 17, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, imagine living in New York in September of 2001 and being approached by a fellow New Yorker a, a few days after the terror attack with the question, what, what happened with the Twin Towers? Are you kidding? Everybody's talking about it. It's on the front page of the Jerusalem Daily Times at this point. Right? The darkening of the earth in broad daylight, did you miss that? The curtain of the temple torn from top to bottom, you didn't see that either? Are you seriously the only person in town who has no idea of the things that have happened in recent days? And he said to them, verse 19, what things. A question providing them with with an opportunity to express their sorrow and confusion, as well as an open door for a, a teaching moment for the two on their journey. It's the kindness of Jesus here, his compassion for them. And they said to him, and this is almost a complete Christian creed, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death 
and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. The two are, they're devastated, they're disoriented, their heightened expectations of a political Messiah unmet, the one in whom they had put their hope crucified. At the hands of the very ones he was expected to overthrow in uh, giving Israel her political independence. The tomb of Jesus at this point empty, coupled with the testimony of the, the women who had gone to the tomb earlier that day, declaring they had seen a vision of angels who testified to the fact that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. And yet here they are, these two travelers on the road to Emmaus, unbelieving as they go, their Christian creed at this point, lacking confessional belief in a risen Jesus. And he said to them, and this is the key part of this morning's passage, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus rebukes them for failing to believe all that the prophets have spoken, the necessity of the the Messiah's suffering and subsequent glory, after which he essentially enrolls the two in a seminary course. Survey of the Old Testament, biblical theology, systematic theology, hermeneutics all rolled into one. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. It's a way of articulating in all of the Old Testament. Luke leaves no room for doubt on that in declaring that Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures. In Jesus' day, meaning in all of the Old Testament. Here Jesus sits with a couple of devastated disciples on a dusty dirt road and proceeds to show them how the Old Testament speaks of and points to Jesus. In the words of one scholar, the word of God incarnate explaining the word of God written. That's unbelievable. A couple of commentaries I read this this past week, and even prior to that, in looking over the book of Luke, declared if, if they could go back to one place in Scripture, in a time machine, it wouldn't be to the the birth of Jesus, it wouldn't be to the crucifixion or the empty tomb, it would be to this moment to get educated on how to read the scriptures. How would Jesus study his Bible? What would Jesus do? You see it elsewhere in scripture in Jesus' response, for example, to the Jews who are persecuting him in John chapter five, where he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In his writings, Moses wrote of Jesus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Or how about the words of the Apostle Paul as he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. 
Paul says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul verifying that the Old Testament writings, they're about the suffering and subsequent glory of the Messiah. If you look ahead in this very same chapter to verse 44 as Yet another example, you get these words of Jesus spoken to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There Jesus includes all three major literary categories that make up the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. Ian Duguid, professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, he says, the Old Testament is not primarily a book about ancient history or culture, though it contains many things that are historical and that describe ancient cultures. Centrally, the Old Testament is a book about Christ. And more specifically, about his sufferings and the glories that will follow. That is, it is a book about the promise of a coming Messiah through whose sufferings God will establish his glorious eternal kingdom. The Bible, as we've talked about numerous times as a church, 66 books written over the course of nearly 2,000 years by roughly 40 human authors, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, doctors, scholars, written in both Greek and Hebrew with a little Aramaic sprinkled in for good measure, including historical narratives, songs, poetry, letters, sermons, architectural specifications, population statistics, genealogies, and more, and yet telling one overarching story of redemption with Jesus the hero binding the whole thing together. Old Testament and new. As one of my old seminary professors once said, Jesus himself gives the divine authorization for reading all the Old Testament in reference to him. Which is what we see Philip doing in his conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. They're helping the man to see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. One of the many Old Testament prophecies that, that point to Jesus, including Genesis 3.15, the very first promise, God's promise that an offspring of Eve would someday crush the serpent Satan's head. Isaiah 7.14, declaring that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2, declaring that the Messiah would be born <clears throat> in Bethlehem. Psalm 22.16, declaring that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. Those are just a few of the prophecies of Jesus found throughout the pages of the Old Testament. In addition to the many prophecies, there are the many Old Testament people, events, and institutions that foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the greater Adam, as we talked about when we studied that passage on the Garden of Gethsemane. The last Adam, as Paul makes clear in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 having come to do what the first Adam failed to do, committed to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane where Adam had rebelled in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the greater Abel, whose blood speaks a better word than Abel's in establishing a new covenant. 
Jesus is the greater Abraham who left the familiarity of his home not to become the father of many nations, but who did so in entering the slums of our world to redeem the nations. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, carried the wood for the altar on his back up the hill to the place where he would be sacrificed. God providing a ram in a thicket at the last minute as a substitute that Isaac might live. Jesus, not Abraham's one and only son, but God's one and only son, carried the wood of a cross on his back up the hill of Golgotha to the place where he would be sacrificed. Yet God didn't provide a substitute because Jesus is our substitute. Bearing our sins, dying in our place that we might bear his righteousness and live. Jesus is the greater Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold him and betrayed him and uses his power to rescue them. Jesus is the greater Moses, the mediator between God and his people, having established a covenant not with tablets of stone, but in his blood. Jesus is the greater Job, the righteous sufferer whose friends abandoned him when he needed them, tormented by Satan that God might be glorified. Jesus is the greater Boaz, the true kinsman redeemer who cares for the widow and brings Gentiles into God's family. Jesus is the greater David who brought down the towering giants of sin and death on our behalf, the eternal king over God's people. Jesus is the greater Hosea who took for himself a bride who isn't always faithful, though he is always faithful even when we are not. Jesus is the greater Jonah who remained in the belly not of a great fish for three days, but in the belly of the earth for three days before rising in victory over sin and death. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, innocent without blemish or spot, slain so that the angel of death might pass over you and me. Jesus is the true prophet, the faithful witness who came not only proclaiming the word of God, but who is the word of God, the very fulfillment of the words of the prophets who came before him. Jesus is the true priest, who not only offered the once for all sacrifice, but is the once for all sacrifice for sin, who now lives to intercede for us and draw us into the very presence of God. Jesus is the true king, who not only rules and reigns over the church, but the entirety of creation as the king of kings, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. Jesus is the true tabernacle, the true temple, the true shepherd, the true bread, the true vine, the true light. The wonder of the many Old Testament people, events, and institutions that foreshadow the person and work of Jesus in addition to the many prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And then there are the many promises found in Scripture. <clears throat> As the Apostle Paul declares, 1 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And what that means is that every promise that we come across in the Old Testament should direct our gaze to Jesus Christ, the one in whom each and every one of those promises finds their yes. In addition, every law we encounter in the Old Testament points us to Jesus, reminding us of our deep need for the perfect, obedient, law-keeping Christ. Not to mention, as we've talked about before, Every pillar of Christian doctrine, every theological concept, each and every one pointing us to Jesus. Can't study the doctrine of creation apart from Jesus because all things were created through him and for him. 
Can't study the doctrine of man apart from Jesus because you and I are made in his image and as his redeemed are being conformed to his image, Romans 8. Can't study the doctrine of angelic beings apart from Jesus because angels minister to him and sing of his glory. Can't study the doctrine of demonic beings apart from Jesus because he is our victory over the powers of evil, Colossians 2. You can't study the doctrine of salvation apart from Jesus because there is no salvation apart from him. We can't study the doctrine of the church apart from Jesus because there is no body without the head who is Christ. And you can't study the doctrine of the end times without Jesus because it's Jesus who will someday return to set all things right. What it must have been like to sit with Jesus on that dusty dirt road that day as he interpreted to those two travelers in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 28, so they drew near to the village of which they were going and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. I mean, you can imagine why they would want Jesus to stick around. Let's do more of this, Jesus. Keep walking us through the Old Testament, even though they still aren't aware that it's him at this point, though having seen him throughout the pages of the Old Testament that very day. We're told that Jesus responded to their invitation and he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Maybe it was something familiar about the way that he blessed and broke the bread, reminding them of the many times that he had broken bread with them throughout the course of his public ministry, the feeding of the 5,000 being one example. Maybe the act itself revealed to them his nail-scarred hands. In that moment, eyes to see, 2 Corinthians 4, recognizing the, the stranger on the road to Emmaus to be the risen Jesus. Jesus disappearing soon after, leaving them to sit with the wonder of all that had taken place that day. A day that, that they would surely never forget. A day that in the words of one scholar, their winter of soul was gone forever. Which is why we have the language of verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why does it matter that we bring a, a Christological interpretive lens to our reading of the Bible? Why is it so critical that we embrace this way of, of reading the scriptures? Well, for one, it, it guards us from moralizing the scriptures, from viewing the characters that we encounter in scripture as the, the ultimate heroes of the past. Right? We, could, we could hold all of the heroes of the faith under a microscope and in doing so prove that there's only one true and perfect hero. Abraham lied twice. After the flood, Noah planted a vineyard and got drunk from the wine, premeditated sin at its finest. Sarah laughed at God. Jacob deceived. Moses was a murderer. David one-upped Moses and was a murderer and an adulterer. And those are the best of the best represented in the, the great Hebrews 11 hall of faith. Religion in the negative use of the term says there are good guys and bad guys and be one of the good guys and God will love you. 
The gospel says there are no good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys in Jesus who came to save bad guys like you and me, who stooped into the slums of our broken world that we might have hope, forgiveness, redemption. In other words, not only does this approach to opening the the scriptures guard us from viewing biblical characters uh, as the ultimate heroes of the past, but it also guards us from viewing ourselves as the ultimate heroes of the present. Neither you nor I nor any biblical character can stand on the pedestal of human history as its hero. Only Jesus. So I would say, thanks be to God that the story of David is not ultimately a story about slaying our giants, but rather a story foreshadowing the greatest giant slayer the world has ever known. The Bible is ultimately God's great story of redemption in Jesus Christ. One that holds within its pages the, the power, Luke tells us, to set hearts ablaze. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So the question for us this morning is simple. Does, does your heart burn for Jesus? Perhaps you've experienced something of that inner warmth this very morning as we've considered the many ways that Jesus is revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. If you want your heart set ablaze for Christ, read the Old Testament and look for Jesus and then read the New Testament and look for Jesus. It's in seeing Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, Luke tells us, that Our hearts are set ablaze as the scriptures come alive in our souls with the centrality and reality of Jesus Christ. Might start with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones apparently sat with this passage of scripture at some point and bought into it. I can't tell you the number of times that I've wept while reading that children's Bible. It's a good starting point. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship this Jesus. And I I just encourage you, as we do, as we prepare to to sing, to, to bring our collective worship through song before the risen King, we're going to take just a few moments of reflection before we begin singing. I just encourage you to take that time to sit with the Lord and to ask the so what of our time in the Bible this morning? Is this a reorientation in terms of a a lens of interpretation with respect to the reading of the Bible? Is this an opportunity to cry out for the Lord to set your heart ablaze, a heart having grown cold? Is this a moment to ask the Lord to fan it into flame all the more, a heart that's already set ablaze, that's in love with Christ, sees the centrality and reality of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. I just want to give, give all of us, myself included, some time and space to sit with that. <clears throat> and then we'll sing to the risen Jesus, hopefully with hearts that are alive. I also have an opportunity over these last few songs to partake of the Lord's Supper. You're welcome to do that whenever you're prepared to do so over the course of these last few songs. There are uh, communion tables to my right and left. There's a gluten-free one on that corner. There are little cups in that corner. As I've said the past few weeks, 
you cannot miss communion no matter which direction you go in this auditorium. And as you prepare to receive of the elements this morning, for those of you who have bought into this interpretive lens as it pertains to the reading of God's word, as you prepare to receive the the bread and the cup, I would just encourage you to, to go on a warp speed tour to the many ways that you've seen the, the proclamation of the suffering and subsequent glory of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Sit with that imagery before you take in the bread and the cup, the tabernacle, the temple, the Passover lamb, the promises going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the, the many pillars of Christian doctrine revealed throughout the Old Testament, the many laws found in the book of Leviticus that all find their hope in a law-fulfilling Jesus Christ. Just let your mind dream for a minute or two and then receive of those elements joyfully. Let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship in in those different ways together. Lord Jesus, you are the hero of this great story of redemption. This plan set in place before the foundations of the world decreed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied to our hearts by the Spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that the Bible is the greatest story ever told. And it's a story that continues to be told as the church continues on. The greatest and truest of fairy tales the greatest dragon slayer the world has ever known, having stooped into our world to rescue the damsel in distress, to bring us into the happiest of ever afters that we could possibly dream or imagine. The Bible's not some boring book with a bunch of piecemealed stories telling us to be heroic in a thousand different ways as its ultimate message. It's one story of redemption, Jesus, you're the hero that binds it all together. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, would you help us to see you in the pages of Scripture that our hearts would burn within us, be it for the first time or as a continuation of a a flame that's already there. You're worthy of our worship this morning as the risen king the only one in whom we have hope, forgiveness, to receive our worship this morning. Ultimately, may it be for your glory, for our joy, as we continue through the song of the church and the receiving of the bread and the cup. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.